Um, today, I was kind of given a blank slate, um, invited to preach on what I want, which is ironic because last week when I was preaching towards the end of our Ephesians series, I made the point that I couldn't preach on what I want because we're going through a, a book of the Bible and this is what biblical preaching is all about. You're tied to the questions that the text raises, not what you want to talk on. This week I'm talking on what I want to talk on uh, and we're talking on doubt, doubt, uh, doubt this evening. Um, more on that in a moment. Um, where we've been, we've just finished a series in the book of Ephesians and if you're new to faith, the book of Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, which, you know, he's historically one of the greatest church planters who ever lived, lived just on the other side of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, did some incredible things, and he wrote a book, he wrote a letter, probably a cyclical letter, you know, it was passed through to a number of congregations in that sort of Lycus Valley area in the first century, uh, and that whole book is basically like a, a Christian creation narrative. Um, Christians have Genesis 1 and 2, it tells us our origins, why we're here, but Ephesians, it really tells the story of our new birth, what God's done in Jesus Christ to make a people and how those people are to live their lives in witness to both the dark powers and also continually being transformed into the image of God revealed in the face of Jesus. So we finished that last week. Next week, uh, we're doing one of our Becoming series. So each week, each, sort of each quarter this year, uh, we're revisiting our larger vision for the year. And it's on the screen here. Our vision for the year is Becoming. And all that that word evokes in your imagination right now, becoming more like Jesus, becoming all that God's called us to be, becoming the very things God destined us to be. And the reason we're revisiting that is because One Vision Sunday isn't rhythmic enough, it's not big enough, it's not sufficient enough to drum into us and change our imaginations enough that we might genuinely contemplate becoming more like Jesus. So we're going to revisit that next week. This week, with the freedom I've been given, I want to talk about doubt. And doubt has a really dear place in my heart. Because if you were to say, actually, that's not a foreign word to me either. I too have experienced that. I'd, I'd say, cool, we're in the same club. Doubt's dear to me too, because I used to work for a ministry, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. And the vision for that ministry was helping the thinker believe and the believer think, reaching people of influence with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe in that vision still, even though the ministry, if you're familiar with the story, has undergone some terrible things. Still believe in that vision. What a wonderful vision. But the people I'd meet with and talk to and spend time with, they had doubts. Doubts dear to me because I am so sick of the stories of friends, old mentors of mine, old, old peers of mine, walking away from faith because they think that doubt disqualifies their discipleship. They believe the myth that doubt disqualifies their discipleship. I'm passionate about doubt, not as something for you to have, but as something to explain, because I'm sick of Christians feeling like doubt disqualifies their discipleship, and I'm sick of non-Christians, skeptics, atheists, thinking that their doubt should hold them back from genuinely encountering Jesus. I actually believe the opposite. I think doubt is just a normal ingredient in the journey of a deepening faith. It's not a pleasant ingredient, but it's normal. Doubt's normal. Even just, let me step back, let's talk about it on a human level. Humans doubt trivial things, right? Doubt's a normal part of a normal life, right? So we doubt trivial things. Take, for example, um, dinner. 
we, we doubt sometimes that the person we're preparing dinner for will be home in time to eat it. We doubt trivial things. We doubt things like whether the weather will be good enough tomorrow for the picnic we want to have. We doubt trivial things. We also doubt more serious things. We doubt whether the person we've given our life to in marriage really has the character to sustain the marriage covenant we've committed to. Sometimes we doubt that. We doubt whether the government that we sit under will uphold the values we esteem. Liberty, happiness, those kinds of things. We doubt serious things. And if you're a human, my bet is that you doubt ultimate things. You you doubt whether the reality that you've mentally ascribed to is true. You, You doubt whether the framework you have for the cosmos, the universe, is reliable. This isn't just true for Christians, it's true for every single human. And the reason it's more true today than ever before is because we live in what scholars are calling a secular age. You might have heard that language before. If you haven't, I'm sorry. We live in a secular age. Let me explain what a secular age is. A secular age is a moment in history, the one we find ourselves in, where faith is contested. That's a sort of nice little back pocket definition. Faith is contested. And faith is contested because you have a number of diverse faith options on the table in any given community, particularly metropolitan cities. What does that mean in layman's terms? It actually means that you might right now find yourself next to someone who doesn't have the same worldview as you, the same framework as you, the same belief system as you. And what that does on an intellectual level is really good. It's something really good. It means that faith needs to be justified. And that's a good thing intellectually. But what it does existentially, at a heart level, at the level of which, you know, in which like, you wake up and what's the first thought you have on your mind kind of level, what that does on that level is it just means that each person... Every human doubts both ways. If you're a Christian, you doubt whether God's real or he's good. If you're a Hindu, you doubt whether your belief system corresponds to the reality you find yourself in. And unfortunately, if you're an atheist or an agnostic, you too experience doubt. For the spiritual person, doubt goes something like this. Life, it's okay. The promise that the preacher made on the platform, I just haven't experienced yet. So maybe God's not real, or if he is, he's not good. That's the spiritual person's doubt. Sure, there might be other ways to explain it. Doubt for the atheist, for the materialist, for the person who doesn't think that spiritual things are real, it goes something like this. Man, the Australian dream, it's okay got that slice of land, purchased it, up to my eyeballs in debt, it's okay, but it doesn't really feel, it doesn't really add up. There's something nagging within me, and it raises a question, and the question is this, is there more to life than this? Is there more to life than this? Now, the Christian answer to that is yes, and his name's Jesus, but the major point I'm making is we all doubt both ways, whether you're a Christian, whether you're an atheist, whether you're a Hindu or a Buddhist, whether you have a framework at all for life. We all have those moments in bed and we're belly button gazing and we're like, oh, why am I here? Anyone? We do that. And so I want to talk about two things today. I want to deconstruct a myth that we have about doubt, particularly Christian myths around doubt, and I want to give you a sort of a bit of a manual 
with which you can walk through doubt. So myths and a manual. Um, and before I do that, I'd love to just pray. Because in as much as I, I can talk, right, for the next 30 minutes, but what I'm talking about is not just ideas. I'm a follower of Jesus. Most of us in this room are too. And Jesus is not just an idea. He's a person. He's a reality. He's life. And he's life to the full. So I want to pray that as I speak and address some of the idea stuff around it and the scriptural stuff around it, that you'd be open to the possibility that what I'm talking about is not just an idea you can entertain at arm's length, but a, but a person. Um, so let me pray. Lord Jesus, we just acknowledge that you're here by your spirit right now. And we ask, Lord, anything holding us back from deep, real, present relationship with you, I, I ask, Father, that you would just remove that. Whether it's our doubts or whether it's our facade of faith. Whatever it is, Lord, speak to us today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's talk myths for a second. When I was little... Um, I've shared this illustration before. If you've done your background checks on me, you would have seen me use this story on a YouTube video. I like the illustration that much. When I was little, uh, my mum would pack my lunch for me. Anyone else, you know, get lunches packed for them until they were like teenager? Yeah, sweet. We don't have issues, you know. Come talk to me after the service. My mum would pack my lunch for me. And she'd always pack, you know, something sustaining like a sandwich, something healthy like an apple, and something sweet like Dunkaroos or, you know, name your favourite. And... I used to smash the Dunkaroos, the sweet stuff. I used to smash the sandwich because ham and cheese, I felt like, you know, pretty bougie little young kid at a state school in Redcliffe. Smash the sandwich and I'd leave the fruit because I had this idea that fruit just wasn't as cool as all the other lunches. And because my idea about the fruit made me leave it in my lunchbox, what would end up happening is I'd leave it in my lunchbox, leave my lunchbox in my bag and slowly but surely it would just decay over time and my mum would find it months, months later. The Granny Smith apple no longer resembled an apple. Because of my perception of the fruit, it made me do something with it that changed what should have been healthy for me into something harmful. You wouldn't eat a rotten apple. And I think Christians and their perception and the myths that they have about doubt are most of, not all of, but are most of the reason that doubt is such a big thing in the life of a Christian. And what I want to say is it need not be. And to say that, let me deconstruct two myths. The first myth that people have about doubt is that doubt and faith are incompatible. That they're, they want to knock heads, they want to fight with each other. Doubt and faith are incompatible. Um, we live in a world right now where there's actually competing ideas about what doubt is in the life of a Christian. On one end of the spectrum, You've got people who say that doubt is inherently evil, inherently bad, that there can't be anything good about doubt in the life of a Christian. They say things like, faith means simply believing, and Hebrews says that, so we've got to have nuance here, right? Simply believing, full stop. Simply believing, full stop. They define faith in such a way to make the phenomenon of doubt seem evil. You'll know you have experienced this type of Christian subculture when you present a problem to a trusted friend 
and you say, I'm just struggling in this area. And they say something like, George Michael, you just got to have faith, right? They, they define faith in contrast to doubt. Um, that's, that's on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, and this is particularly pertinent in the 21st century, you've got a Christian subculture that thinks that doubt is inherently good, wholly good. You might have heard the phrase deconstruction before. There's something that people engage to get rid of unhelpful ideas about God. And I want to say on one level, that's, there's something good about that. Why? Well, actually, many of the ideas that we have about God, unless they're tethered to the Scriptures, they're not reliable. And many of the things that people say, particularly from a pulpit, here's my goal in preaching, right? My goal is to say, up to what Scripture says, not less, and not more. And there's a part of deconstruction which is good. Deconstructing bad and unfaithful ideas about God is a very good thing. But if you define doubt as inherently good, then you won't just deconstruct bad ideas about God, you'll deconstruct everything. And then you'll be looking for a community that you can identify with, with your deconstruction. And here's the thing, it's out there. And these communities, there's something beautiful about them. But there's something questionable about them. And the question I have is, I think they've defined doubt as wholly good. And these are the two ends of the spectrum. Doubt is either wholly good or it's wholly evil. The divide that exists on the topic of doubt in the modern Christian world is that it's wholly wrong and should be rejected and you should freak out when you get it because it's in contrast to faith. Or it's wholly good, you should embrace it and use it as a catalyst to deconstruct everything. And so you throw out the, the, the faithful Christian idea of God with the larger bad idea bathwater, if I can put it that way. And what I want to say in this first point is, is this, that the Bible's just a bit more nuanced. It's just a little bit more complex than that. There's a famous story in Mark 9, and I'd love to read it to you, of a father with a sick son. And it'll be up on the, up on the board, up on the screen for us in a moment. John 9, 14 to 27. And it reads like this. So when they came to him, to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd gathered around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. Man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by the spirit who has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. This is Jesus with fighting words. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into a fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. 
The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. And after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. So here's the summary. Jesus takes a father's sick son, and the disciples who prayed for him earlier couldn't heal the son. Jesus takes him and goes to heal him. The father says, why won't the evil spirit come out of my son? And Jesus says, everything is possible for one who believes. And the father responds, and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. Boom, Jesus heals the son, life restored, and then Jesus debriefs the situation with the disciples. Now this is a glance of an interpretation, but here's what's going down. Jesus sets up this criteria for healing. Everything is possible for one who believes. Seems pretty straightforward. Cheers, Jesus. Thanks for making it black and white. I'll just give that a crack. And the Father, he fulfills the criteria, and get this, not by pretending he had unwavering certainty, not by pretending he had unwavering optimism in God. The Father fulfills the criteria set out by Jesus by being honest that he didn't have those things. He takes his whole self, his doubts and all, and he gives them to Jesus. And the lesson I think we can learn from this passage is that being a Christian doesn't mean being someone who doesn't have doubts. It means being someone who's honest about their doubts and brings them to God in community. That's real faith. Trusting God with who you are and especially with who you're not. Especially when it comes to our intellectual certainty and confidence about the things that are unseen. That's real faith. All your timidity and all your doubt. The problem with a Christian subculture that defines faith as wish fulfillment, defines faith as something you just need to muster up with your own willpower, is that it means that the focus of your Christian journey is one in which you're concerned to have something called faith, rather than one in which you're concerned to center your life around Jesus. In other words, what's the object of our faith? Is it faith itself, or is it Jesus? And the story of the scriptures would ask us to say it's Jesus. Jesus is the object of our faith. So that's, that's the problem with a Christian subculture that defines faith on as holy, um, doubt as holy bad. The problem with the overreaction of the other Christian subculture is that you can mistake the good life of following Jesus for the second best life of subjectively constructing your own faith. And as someone who's known Jesus now for 10 plus years, others of you more, I just want to say to you, that is second best. Jesus is better. The God who revealed himself in the face of Jesus in the pages of these scriptures, it's just better. And he's true. Here's the good news of the Christian life. That it's not the strength of your faith that counts. It's the object. And the object is Jesus. Doubt is not inherently wrong. Don't hide it or be ashamed of it. At the same time, Doubt's not inherently good, so don't uncritically embrace your doubts. Realize that faith and doubt, they're not in competition with one another. They're the normal ebb and flow of a life lived in vulnerability before God and authenticity with yourself.
Myth number two is that I'm alone in my doubts, and I'll do this one really, really quick. We all believe sometimes that we're like the, the first person to define the thing that has like completely debunked Christianity. I know I felt that way sometimes, maybe not you, but it's this sense that, oh my gosh, I've thought about something, or I've discovered something, or I've followed a Reddit rabbit hole, you know, online, or watched these atheists and Christians debate on YouTube for way too long, and I've discovered a thought that's going to completely undermine my faith for the first time, and no one's aware about this, and, and I'm alone. That sense of isolation and doubt. And I just want to say to you, this is a myth. This is another myth. Doubt has a healthy tradition in the Christian story. Go to the scriptures. This is what most of the Psalms are written around. Psalm 88 is held by commentators as one of the darkest Psalms of David. It's one of only a few Psalms which fail to finish with praise. And right in the middle, David pens these words. He says, I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? He's doubting. God, where are you? If you're there, are you good? Doubt's not strange to David. Doubt's not even strange to Jesus, the guy who we follow, the God in flesh, Jesus Christ. Doubt's not strange to him. He's standing in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying his last prayers that we have recorded. Actually, no. Well, that is one instance. Another prayer I'm thinking of, actually, is when he's on the cross, and he cries out in the words of the psalmist. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've all had moments in life. This is a profound one for Jesus where we were asking the question, where is God? He seems so hidden. Maybe he was never there. I'm not saying Jesus had that level of existential, but who knows? He might have. The point is doubt's not strange from key characters in the Christian story, and doubt's not strange from church history. Uh, one quick example comes to mind is that of C.S. Lewis. I think it was 19, the 1940s, he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, which is like this philosophical you know, speculation on how we can reconcile suffering and, and Christian faith. And he wrote that, and it's sort of his like, argument towards marrying those two things together. And then a few years later, he lost his wife, Joy. And he penned a very different book then. And that book is him doubting in real time, publishing it for our, our eavesdropping. Doubt is not strange to the Christian faith and to Christians. You're not alone in your doubt. But you do need to know how to navigate them. And I want to give you three quick things I found helpful, and that I think you'll find helpful, that you can use to navigate doubt when it comes in your life. And the first one is this, you need to articulate your doubts. In my experience, correct me if I'm wrong, doubt can be more of a feeling than it can be an articulated thought. Does anyone resonate with that idea? Maybe you wake up and it's not that you spent your night on YouTube, like listening to all the debates or whatever. It's, it's more that you've just woken up and thought, huh, I wonder if this is all real. Now, some of you might not have experienced that, and that's a beautiful thing. But I've experienced that. And saying that as a pastor is quite hard. But I've experienced that. And it is scary. It's this feeling. It's this ominous, ill-definable feeling writers in the Christian tradition have called it the dark night of the soul, the sense that God is hidden, maybe hidden so much that he was never there. I've had that feeling. I've woken to that feeling. Maybe you have too. And my encouragement to you is just try and articulate what it is. It's not rocket science, but it's profoundly helpful. Articulate what your doubt is. Um, 
I said before that real faith means trusting God with who we are and who we're not. Taking both your faith and your doubt. And that's what the father did. He articulated his doubt. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. So how do you articulate your doubt? Well, let me say first, literally write it out. Write it out in your journal. See whether, you know, you can look back on that journal entry and God's answered that particular question. Um, but more, more helpfully, write it out in prayer. This is what the Father's doing. Now, obviously, the Father might not have known all that Christians on the other side of the Council of Chalcedon know that Jesus is God in flesh and all that kind of stuff. But if we look back with retrospect, we, we could say that, in a sense, is, is prayer. He's going to God and saying, I believe, help my unbelief. What a profound example of what it means to live the Christian life through doubt. I believe, help my unbelief. Take it to God in prayer. Another way you can do it is, is take it to a trusted friend in community. We've all got those people that we rely upon. Take your doubt to them in community. Articulate your doubt. Um, the reason is, is because you actually can't find an answer to an ominous cloud-like feeling, but you can research stuff in response to an articulated doubt. And if Christianity is true, then our methods of inquiry, though God's not subject to them, he's bigger than them, he should resonate with them. I will talk a bit more about that in a second. Let's say you do write it down and it's actually specific. Maybe it's something like this. How do I reconcile my suffering with a God who claims to be good and ultimately in control? How do I do that? Maybe you've picked up the Gospels of Jesus and you're reading about his life and you're asking, how do I know that this is a reliable record of the life of Jesus? It's not just some primitive people seeing someone do wha something wacky and you know, then ascribing to him some kind of divinity. How do, how do I know? What happens when you write that down? You get to research it. And there's a healthy Christian tradition of incredible scholarship that exists not just to answer those questions, but to give better answers to them than more skeptical responses. Bring it to God in prayer. Be honest about it in community with God's people. Here's the point. You need to articulate your doubts, not just feel them. If you don't move from feeling them to articulating them, you'll be subject to them. If you articulate them, it's the first step towards distancing yourself from them and finding help, finding peace. Articulate your doubts. Second, you need to unmask your beliefs. In the 20th century, there was an English lit major at the University of Oxford. His name was Sheldon Van Auken. He wrote a book called Severe Mercy, which every time I read, I cry. Kath's read it. It's a beautiful book. And he was a friend of C.S. Lewis. Sheldon Van Auken, 20th century, Oxford University. He and his wife were originally from America. And early in their marriage, they spent their time wandering around Florida. They were sort of like the pagan of pagans. They loved listening to vinyl. Um, they, they thought that the material world was all that there is. They were atheists, you know, but they were pagan atheists. They just thought that the material world that we experience, and um, they got hedonistic about it. Like, we just need to listen to vinyl and eat good food and drink good wine, and this is their life, and they sound like Australians. Um, Self-professed lovers of beauty and agnostics. When they moved to England, they became friends with Lewis and a number of Christians in Oxford. And the more time they spent with them, and this is what the book Severe Mercy sort of documents, it's like an autobiographical account, the more time they spent with them, the more they entertained the idea of God. Now, it was Sheldon and his wife, Davy. Davy ends up becoming a Christian, and Sheldon can't handle it, and he gets angry about it. 
But this anger propels him to investigate. And so he begins doing so. It took a bit more time. He had a few more doubts, but eventually he became a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And in the book he wrote, he records his experience. And I want to I want to share his words with you about what it was like for him to become a Christian amidst his doubts. He said this, he says, Christianity seemed probable to me, but there is a gap between the probable and the proved. How was I to cross it? Now, that's a great question. There's a gap between the probable and the proved. Two pages later in the same book, he describes in a poem what helped him cross that gap, and I'd love to read it to you, at least the first half. He asked this question in the poem. He said, did Jesus live, and did he really say the burning words that banish mortal fear. And are they true? Just this is central here. The church must stand or fall. It's Christ that we weigh. Between the probable and the proved, there yawns a gap. Afraid to jump, we stand absurd. Then see behind us sink the ground and worse. Our very standpoint crumbling. Desperate dawns. What's he saying? He's saying that he was entertaining the truth of Christianity. And the more he did so, the more he realized that he was not a person without belief. That the very ground he stood on as an observer itself had beliefs about the world which he realized weren't sufficient. In other words, a lot of people think that doubt is one thing and belief is another thing. That Christians are people of faith and atheists are people of reason. But actually... All doubts are fundamentally just deeper beliefs in something else. And that's what he came to realize in this poem. All doubts are just deeper beliefs. Every time you say you doubt the truth of something, you're making a leap of faith in something else, which itself is often more difficult to justify than the belief that you're doubting. So, for example, a lot of people say, look, I just can't believe in Christianity because it's so exclusive. Why would it be so exclusive? That just makes me doubt and I want to reject it. It's very exclusive for Christians to say that Jesus is the only way, when many other people are saying the same thing about their sort of faith system. But if you say that, here's the thing, here's what you're really saying. You're saying that what you believe is that all truth is relative. And here's the question. What reasons are there to believe that? When you say, I can't believe in Christianity because it, it claims to be exclusively true and that's offensive to me, these are big, these are big ideas, I know, right? At a deeper level, you're saying, I believe that all truth is relative, every road is justified, and here's the question, why should I believe that? Because you do. And the answer is, well, actually, sneak, lurking behind this assumption is that I have a God's eye view of the universe, but no one does. Everyone makes a statement of faith when they doubt something else. If I were to ask you, what kind of things in life can we know with absolute certainty? What would you say? It might shock you to know that the categories of things that we can know in life with absolute certainty is actually quite small. I can think of three things, mathematical truths, logical truths, and self-evident truths. So maths don't lie, right? One plus one is always gonna equal two. Logical truths, A does not equal B. And self-evident truths, all bachelors are unmarried men. These things are true, certainly. But everything else in life, everything meaningful in life, everything big in life, it's not a question of proving it, it's a question of probability. So then it's not a question of certainty, it's a question of confidence. How confident are you? 
And that should just temper the way we entertain our doubts, because here's what we're not talking about. I'm not saying that I'm certain about my worldview, but I'm saying I am so confident I'm going to stake my life on it. That should temper the way you experience doubt. Certainty is something that exists in the domain of logical truths and maths. It doesn't exist in the domain of faith and history and science. That's probability, and that changes things. Alfred Lord Tennyson, a British poet, he said it like this. He said, for nothing worthy proving can be proven, nor yet disprove, wherefore thou be wise, cleave ever to the sunnier side of doubt. What's he saying? He's saying we don't deal in certainties, we deal in probabilities. And the task of all of us is to faithfully respond to the evidence that's in front of us and cleave to the less doubtful side. That just changes the metrics a bit. Here's the point. All of us, this is my major point here, all of us, whether you're a Christian, whether you're an atheist, whether you're a Buddhist, whether you're a Hindu, whether you don't define yourself religiously on the census every time, we're all people of faith. And the question I would ask us is, what evidence do you have for your faith? What is your faith in? Last, last sort of point, and it's this, that you need to follow the evidence. And this is a point that I get from reading the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John. One of the famous stories from the Gospel of John is the story of Doubting Thomas, John chapter 20. If you've been following us in our um, sort of Becoming More Like Jesus series and our biblical readings, uh, you would have read this sort of three days ago. Um, Doubting Thomas goes up to Jesus. Thomas, he was a disciple who spent three years on the road with Jesus. Then Jesus dies, and the hope that he was the king who'd come to liberate the Jewish people from evil, that hope dies with the death of Jesus. Then a few days later, Jesus appears to the disciples. Thomas was out at the time, so he didn't get first-hand experience of this resurrected Jesus. And when the disciples, his mates, they give him the report that the guy that they put their hope in wasn't dead but is now alive, Thomas, he freaks out and he's like, dead people don't rise. That's not possible. And he's got doubts. He said to Jesus, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were, I will not believe. I resonate with Thomas. A week later, the resurrected Jesus appears to the disciples. He goes up to Thomas. And in the story, if you were to read it, you'd notice something. Jesus doesn't say to Thomas, hey, because you've doubted, you're out. Hey, because you've had trouble believing in me, like, you're disqualified. Jesus opens himself up to Thomas's doubt. And he says, check out where the nails were. Put your finger there. In other words, Jesus, the king of the universe, resurrected, ruling and reigning, making his appearances, he says, check it out. He condescends to Thomas's doubt. And we can learn something from this, because the same thing is true for us today. God stepped into history. It wasn't an accident. There's documents which tell of his dealings. There's history that bears witness to him. God's given us minds, and he's not upset when we want to use them. If God put on flesh in Jesus Christ, he made himself vulnerable to historical inquiry. So here's the question. Well, here's the point. If you've got doubts, read the Gospels. If you've got doubts, go to history. If you've got doubts, don't think about God in your room with the door shut and no books before you. Go to the place that he's claimed to reveal himself. 
And you can have a fair degree of confidence, a great degree of confidence, that the documents that record the life of Jesus are reliable. And I'd be happy to talk you through some of that one time if you like. John Dixon, famous Christian from Sydney, an apologist, speaker, writer, historian, he said, Christianity lays its head on the chopping block of history and asks anyone who wants to come and take a swing. Now, here's the question. What God does that? Jesus. If God has written himself into flesh and blood history, you are welcome to come and investigate him and follow where the evidence leads. Notice, though, and this is the last thing I'll say, what happens next in the story. Again, read the story if you've got time. Jesus goes to Thomas. After Jesus shows to Thomas the wounds, the piercings, he says, Thomas, stop doubting and believe. Stop doubting and believe. See, on the one hand, Jesus condescends to Thomas's skepticism, but on the other hand, he commands him, through his doubt, to have faith. What's going on? I think what's going on is this. Sometimes doubts are just feelings, and if they're feelings, we need to articulate them. Sometimes, though, doubts are articulated beliefs, and if they are, we need to investigate them. Sometimes, doubts are just a stubbornness of the will. And to that kind of doubt, I want to, I want to relabel it and call it pride. And the words of King Jesus to pride are very different to the words of King Jesus to skepticism. To skepticism, Jesus says, come and see. But to a stubbornness of the will, he says, stop. Stop doubting and believe. You've seen enough. I've opened you the evidence that you need. You've seen enough. Stop doubting and believe. And as the band comes up, I, I want to encourage you in this last point. Follow the evidence where it leads. Now, here's the good thing about the Christian story. The Christian story is not just a worldview to entertain intellectually. It's a way of life. And so as you unpack it, as you explore it, you're not just thinking about ideas at arm's length. You're also engaging with a people who claim to represent Jesus, the church. And you're also opening yourself up in your heart to how God might want to interact with you in prayer and a whole host of other spiritual disciplines. In other words, there's multiple highways that make up embodied human experience as we come to meet Jesus. And all of them are on the table. Why is that important? Well, it's important because right now we're going to respond. And some of you have doubts. You might be a Christian. And you know the feeling of waking up, wondering whether it's all real. You might know that feeling. It might have haunted you. And you might have never had someone to name it. The response for you is, tell someone. Tell a trusted Christian friend. Articulate it. You might be a Christian, you might not struggle with doubt at all. Here's the response for you. Worship unashamedly in this next song. Don't hold back. Why would you settle for anything less? God's here. God's right here. You might not be a Christian. 
That might be because you've walked away from faith. It might be because you've deconstructed your faith into oblivion. It might be because you've never heard of Jesus. And here's what I want to say to you. Come. Come and know Him. Now, it could look like a multitude of things. It could look like talking to someone after the service. It could look like throwing questions my way. I'm open to them. It could look like opening yourself up to a wonderful array of testimonies on the internet that are strangely, you know, available these days. But here's what I think it could mean. It could mean that you just open yourself to God in prayer. And if you find yourself being at the precipice, on the edge of the cliff, wanting to open yourself to God in prayer, I'd love to just pray for you. And so before I do, I just want to ask everyone in the room if they might stand ready for worship. Thanks so much. And with all the eyes closed, I just want to invite you to do business with God. And particularly if you're not a Christian, I want to ask you to do two things. One, open yourself to Him in prayer now. And two, if you do that, please come and share it with one of the team afterwards. Please come and share it with one of the team afterwards. Because we'd love to pray for you, help you, connect you, and get you not just starting a conversation with God, but following through with it, becoming a disciple of Jesus. And so I want to pray, particularly for those who would love to meet and do business with Jesus, maybe for the first time. Lord God, thank you that you showed up in history. Maybe you're showing up in my life right now. Lord, help me be open to you. God, thank you for Jesus. What he's done, who he is, how he's come for us. Father, I I just say I want to follow you. I want to know you. If you're real, show up in my life. Lord, I want to pray for the Christian now. Lord, would you pour out your spirit on us? Make us more like your son. Give us an openness to the things of God and unashamedness with the power of God and unhinderedness in worship. We just give you our hearts this afternoon, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.